There's uh, nothing. Uh, there's nothing good about me, and there's everything good about my Savior. All right. So, speaking of goodness, let's get back to our study of systematic theology uh, for this first hour. Turn, if you will, to Romans chapter two. Romans chapter two. I try to make a room on this lectern for both my Bible and my my source material. Of course, we're building off of John Frame's systematic theology. We're using that as our launching pad, if you will, to discuss these things. We have spent several weeks uh, discussing, well, of course, theology is a study of God. We're trying to understand God uh, and what He has revealed about Himself, and He is Lord. Uh, that is the most prevalent idea of the Scriptures. We have to come, and, we, and if we haven't come to grips with what that means—that He is indeed Lord—then uh, then we've missed the greatest theme of the, all the Scriptures. It shows up in about one out of every five verses, and that's just explicitly. That's not including the implicit uh, uh, declarations of the Scriptures, such as the Book of Esther, which doesn't use the name Lord at all throughout the entire book. It's the only book in the Bible like that. And, uh, but you can't read Esther without seeing his lordship, that he is indeed guiding all things by his power, by his control, by his authority for the good of his people. So we here have spent uh, a long time talking about the acts of God. There are four specific acts that we've zeroed in on. We've talked about miracles. Miracles are... extraordinary acts of God. So, it, so if we define a miracle as an extraordinary act of God, can the devil do miracles? I mean, he'll do lion, he'll do, he'll do lion, lion works and stuff like that, according to, but if, if a miracle is an extraordinary act of God, whereby he manifests himself as Lord, uh, then, then a miracle is a work of God. Uh, and that's, that's one of the arguments of Jesus Christ. He says, if I, by the Spirit of God, or he's even one place said the finger of God, do these things, then, then uh, the kingdom of God is among you, his authority, his power. Um, so miracles are the extraordinary acts of God. What is, what is, the second act of God was providence. What is providence? Besides a place in Rhode Island. Providence is the, not extraordinary, the ordinary, <laughs> the normal, the ordinary works of God whereby he manifests himself as Lord. So that's everything. Everything that happens is, is an expression of his lordship. Uh, he sends rain one place and doesn't send rain another place. It's because he's Lord. He's in control. He's exhibiting his authority, his, his control, his presence in all things. Uh, so we have miracles, we have providence, then we had creation. Creation is a specific act of God whereby he manifests himself as Lord over all uh, by bringing all things into existence. Uh, it was an immediate act. God did not create a being to create all things. 
but God immediately created all things. Um, so creation, and then we talked about God's decrees. Uh, God has decreed things to be, this gets into his planning. God had foreordained and predetermined things uh, to be. Uh, so those were the acts of God. Now we've got into the subject of his attributes. Attributes are different because uh, um, an act is simply just declaring something to be or to have happened. Uh, and we get that in the form of narratives. Uh, but the attributes are something that is attributed to God in some kind of predicate form. Uh, I said to turn to Romans 2, but uh, if you can hold your finger there, and this is most directly related to what we're talking about, but 1 John chapter 4, we have the predicate of uh, something predicated, uh, predicated of God here attributed to him so this could be a, a noun or a, or a adjective in this case it is a noun it says in 1 John 4 8 he that loves not knows not God for God is love so the Bible has attributed now something to God something that is true about God and we talked about different kinds of attributes different ways that we've tried to um, tried to uh, uh, classify these uh, necessary attributes uh, versus uh, relative attributes, things that, uh, things that are true based upon him having a relationship with creation as opposed to things that are true about God in general um, or, or as a necessary that if this thing wasn't there, he would not be God, like, uh, like love. <laughs> For instance, if uh, this is a necessary attribute of God. And there's de also different ways of, of speaking of these. And we're speaking of this, we're, we're talking about the subject of God's attributes under the heading of His Lordship. All those Lordship attributes. So we're getting into, we started getting into goodness last week. Things that develop, things that are declared of Him as ethical traits, if you would. Um, and the reason why Frank gives for starting there is because uh, most people, when they're studying God, they're going to start talking about His power, um, his, his might, His, his, his uh, greatness, His immensity, things like that. But the Scriptures have far more to say about these ethical um, attributes of God than they have anything else, His love, His mercy, uh, and things of that nature, and it's declared as his as the very beauty of God in these things. So we started with the broad aspect of His goodness. God is good, right? That's that's a that's a a, a predicate adjective that God has that God has goodness that He and we try to define what that goodness is. Goodness is um, conduct in and of itself, and there is a, a teleological goodness, that's the idea that God has purposed in his heart to bring certain things to pass, to, do, to give certain favors uh, to those who are uh, 
to all things. He is good to all. Um, so we're, we're discuss- this is a necessary attribute for God is first good in and of himself um, in the nature of the Trinity. But to whom is God good? He's good to his people. Uh, surely God is good to Israel, uh, and, and His mercies are over all, but He's good to all. There is no one that can say that they are not subject to God's goodness. And that brings us to where we left off in Romans chapter 2. Uh, the goodness of God is, is a genuine truth that even the wicked who despise God experience. So if someone is lost, they can never say that God was not good to them. In fact, the fact that God is good to them is a reason they should repent. And that's the argument of Paul in Romans 2 here, where he says, think, verse 3, Thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads thee to repentance? Uh, there's no one that can say that, they, that God was not good to them, and there's no one that is going to be able to say that, uh, that the goodness of God did not lead them and direct them towards repentance uh, even the rich man who lifted up his eyes in hell in Luke 16 was told of God, Thou in, now li- in your life, you in your life, received good things. Right? So that's the nature, nature of God's good, goodness is, is He has given good things to all uh, people, uh, specifically, most, uh, most importantly, to His people. So that's the general aspect of his, his goodness, his, his being the source of all blessing, or James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. All right, so now I want to talk about going back to Roman, or 1 John 4. God is love. In fact, we're not. We're just going to kind of introduce this subject today, and then, as we think of on this Christmas season about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and what great love He showed to us in that in that manifestation, um, I'm glad that we're dealing with this topic at this time. God's love is is immense and it's it's something we're going to have to take time to unpack the concept of goodness and love uh, they overlap a lot um goodness is is a broad concept it, it and when we're talking about us being good we're, we're talking about our conduct meeting the standard of god's conduct or how god carries himself god's god is good and we are to emulate like that, be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And that's in the sense of, of, of uh, giving to those that ask and even praying for our enemies and things of that nature. God's goodness is the standard. Uh, but uh, God, God's goodness is, 
is specifically fo- focus on what we do. Love is that narrow concept of, um, of that thing which drives our goodness and God's goodness specifically. Uh, one person had a definition, Jack Cottrell, had this definition of God's love. It's got his self-giving affection for his image-bearing creatures and his unselfish concern for their well-being that leads him to act on their behalf and for their happiness and their welfare. So, so we're, we're, when we're talking about love, we're talking about that, that truth of God that moves God to do for His creatures, and more important for us that are saved, for us to do what He does. It's what drives His goodness, if we can look at it like that. Although goodness applies to the creation generally, love is distinctly, so I mean God, God, God delights in His creation, but love is distinctly something that is between persons. Uh, so it's a very personal thing. And we can say that it is a necessary truth of God uh, because unlike your Jehovah's Witnesses friends would say, if God, well, I'll go ahead and write this idea. It's a necessary truth of God. God did not need to create in order to love, right? We've gone over this probably a hundred different times. Uh, but well, I like to ask my Jehovah's Witness friend uh, when they come by, and they haven't come by since COVID started. <laughs> so uh, I've noticed I said just send letters now, and nice, well-written letters. I, I, I don't know where they take time to write them. Uh, you got to bless their their uh, their efforts, or or got to appreciate their efforts, not bless their efforts. Uh, but if I ask my Jehovah's Witness friend. How does God show His love unless He creates? If what your idea of God is God is unitary, that God is just one person. Uh, love is a, a mutual thing. It's, it's, it's a reciprocal truth. It's something that happens between persons. And when we say love is a necessary truth, we are asserting that God loves in and of Himself. And that's a, that, that, that is a truth that we find in Trinity, not in, not in uh, Unitarianism or, or Arianism or anything like that. Um, God loves necessarily because God is interpersonal in and of Himself. Uh, he is Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And before the world was ever created, John 17, 5 Jesus, the Son of God, shared glory with the Father um, and, and shared love with the Father. Uh, I, uh, he always, the Father always loved Him and the, and the Son always loved the Father. Uh, so so uh, the definition all, it, it includes this idea of affection and action, feelings and deeds. Um, there are terms that are, that are very close to love when we understand love scripturally. And these are terms like compassion. God is compassionate. Uh, God pities. 
in, in uh, Psalm 104, it talks about him pitying his children. Uh, mercy is, all, is often related to love, and they are connected with these, these words. Uh, or we think of how mercy relates for his great love wherewith he loved us, he had mercy upon us. Uh, and I'm not quoting that exactly right, but, but um, there in Ephesians 2. Uh, the, the Greek words, uh, Hebrew words, uh, raham and hamal, uh, the Greek words, splunkanizomai, uh, which was weird. It just means we, uh, we, we, put, we put the affections, uh, we talk about the affections flowing in the heart. Uh, they, in that time, talked about them flowing from the stomach. Uh, so it was... Uh, it was a reference to the bowels, his bowels of mercy. It would talk about that, and that's a, that's what that long long word there in Greek talked about. It was God was moved with compassion, moved with love, had bowels of compassion. Um, uh, so, and there's a, there's other terms, uh, but these are all aspects of his love, and they cannot this idea that there is this uh, strong emotional motivation of God. So it's an emotional truth of God. I, I don't like some of our language when we talk about when we talk about God, we talk about God as being impassable, and I, I agree with the sentiment, but that does not the, but God is God has passions in that sense, because God loves. Love is a passionate truth, an emotional truth. Um, and there's parallels between God's love and human marriage. Uh, in fact, he makes this parallel all the time. Ezekiel chapter 16, for instance, it talks about his great love that he poured upon Israel. Um, we, we, we see that truth towards God's people in the book of Hosea where he... Where he where he talks about you being for me and me being for you, Hosea chapter three, and in this great, this great emotional picture of the marriage relationship, and and that becomes a great theme in the scripture. It's a theme of love. Uh, that in fact, when we get to Ephesians chapter five, when it talks about the church in Christ, we, we, it is couched in these terms of love. Why do I love my wife? Well, I love how or how do I love my wife? I love her as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her and washed her and did all all these things. Uh, so that that's couched in this idea of love. Um, there are different Greek words. Has anybody ever read C.S. Lewis's Four Loves? Anybody read C.S. Lewis? I'm not a big fan of C.S. Lewis myself, but there are certain ones that he wrote that were, were, were worth reading, and I don't have anything to erase with, so I'm just not going to write anything else down. Uh, but um, he talks about various Greek terms that are used for love, uh, storge, uh, eros, uh, agape, uh, uh, Philae, where we get part of that word Philadelphia. So, the, these are the, this is the language of the scriptures, and um, uh, there can be sometimes some word eros is not used in the scripture. It's used often in Greek literature, even during that time period of the New Testament. But you do not find it in the scripture. But you find. Uh, 
you, you find uh, uh, the other two words, philia and agape, and you can, phileo, I keep mispronouncing it, I'm sorry, uh, but and agape, and sometimes you even find little word plays such as, uh, such as um, Peter when uh, he's asked, do you love me, agape, he answers, I lo- uh, you know I love you, uh, phileo. Um, and uh, what that meaning and what that word play specifically uh, is, uh, a lot of preachers have preached it and things of that nature. And what that sharp difference is specifically, though, is, um, is uh, not necessarily apparent to us. Uh, they, they have different meanings, of course. But really, if we're going to talk about this word agape, which is most usually that which is used of God... Um, we're talking about redemptive. We're using it in a redemptive sense. We're talking about the redemptive love of God, and that is the agape love. Um, theologians have kind of talked about what the difference between uh, the Greek idea of love, eros, as being this selfishness, this uh, uh, this uh, this. Uh, self-centeredness, this, this idea of very, being very sensual, whereby agape uh, is uh, spontaneous, is completely unmotivated, is, is indifferent to the present value of the object, and is completely self-giving. Um, and there is some truth in that, but... Um, and we could say that eros is would have been an inappropriate term to talk about the redemptive love of God, but that's not necessarily always true of, of the term agape. Uh, self-giving nature of God's love is not found so much in the word agape, says, says Frame, as in the te- but as in the teaching of the Scripture uh, altogether. The, the main reason, uh, Frame states here, that the main reason he, they believed that the word agape was used almost exclusively to talk about the redemptive love of God was because it matched what the, what the Septuagint translators had already uh, translated for the Hebrew word ahaba. And therefore, the New Testament followed suit and expands on the concept of the love of God from the Old Testament. Uh, so... I'm trying to find the place in my notes here. So, the discussion of the difference between eros and agape is traditional theological distinction of God's love between uh, benevolence, beneficence, and complacency. And I want to get into some of these ideas. There's this really great quote he gives from Francis Turretin. And I'm going to read it at length. The threefold love is commonly held, or rather, the three degrees of the same love. First, there is love of benevolence. You know what the word benevolence, that's it's the love of kindness, uh, by which God willed good to the creature from eternity. Second, the love of beneficence, by which He does good to the creature in time, according to His good will. Third is the love of complacency by which he delights himself in the creature on account of the rays of his image seen in them. 
The two former preceded every act of the creature. The latter follows, not as an effect its cause, but as a consequence its antecedent. By the love of benevolence He loved us before we were. By the love of beneficence He loved us as we are. And by the love of complacency He loves us when we are, viz. the idea when we are renewed after His image. By the first He elects us, by the second He redeems us and sanctifies us, by the third He gratuitously rewards us as holy and just. All right, so is this scriptural? John 3.16, for God so loved the world. When did He love the world? Before He sent His Son. (laughs) Because that was the motivation for His sending His Son. Uh, He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. When did he choose to send Christ? Before he even created. As an an act of his love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Um, That's a reference to this idea of his benevolence. Before he even created, he loved, and he had already, in his benevolence, made a way for salvation. Uh, Ephesians 2 5, or 5, he loved him, Christ loved himself, and Christ, love your husband, husbands, love your wives. <laughs> I wanted to switch it around. Uh, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself. We're talking about what God did in time now. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 where it says, He loved us and washed us from our sins. We're talking about what God's act in real time uh, where He, while we were sinners, loved us. Why would we sing just as I am without one plea or, or something to that effect? And that becomes a, a rallying cry to, to, for a lot of people. Say, God loves you just the way you are, and it is true. He does. He loves you as a sinner. He loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood. But we have the love of complacency. Uh, Isaiah 62. Thou shalt be be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. Hebrews eleven six it says, He that comes to him must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. This is the this is the love of rewarding. And 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 uh there is this genuine variation of scriptural language. Uh the divine, uh, the divine complacency shows that God's love is not always indifferent to the qualities of His object. I, I think some people will get the idea of, of uh, God's kindness and God's, the kindness of God's love and loving us as sinners 
and they will project it to this idea that God wants us to continue to be sinners. <laughs> and that's not so. Uh, God loves the righteous, it says, Psalm 37, verse 28, uh, Psalm 146, uh, another instance of this, and I'll just read this one because I can't remember the exact wording. But Psalm 146, verse 8, The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises them that are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. Uh, certainly in these passages, the fact that they are righteous motivates His love. Israel's obedience motivates God's love, said frame for her in Deuteronomy 7.13, although God also loved her before she was obedient in Deuteronomy 9. So, so it is with, uh, with wisdom. Uh, wisdom in, in Proverbs 8 says to the son, says, I love them that love me. Uh, there, there is a greater experience of God's love when we're walking in God's will. I love them that love me. We, we love Him because He has first loved us. Um, but, but we find also that reciprocal love experience uh, flows also from us walking, uh, walking with Him and showing those truths of Him in us. Um, Bring them that we may say that God loves us first, benevolence and beneficence, and then loves us because of his work in us. Complacency includes uh, the experience of us walking and delighting in him. So, what that's just a lot of a lot about the language. I want to talk about the extent of God's love. That's the next heading here. God's love extends to everyone. But He loves in different ways. God loves Himself in the Trinitarian society. That's where love exists and why love exists. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father, John 17, 24, uh, John 14, 31. And we have those loves, love between the persons of God, which is eternal, and unchanging. So God would be loving even if He had never created. In that sense, God is love. But God also loves everything that He made and everyone that He has made. Again, John 3... Let's, let's look at John 3.16. I know some of our Calvinist friends will, will particularize this. But what does it actually say? It says exactly what Christ was saying about His goodness in Matthew 5. He's good to all. He's good to the wicked. Here He loves all. He loves how much of the world? Only a particular size of the world? All of it. He loves what He has created. His, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His Son. For what? For the world. Although only believers receive eternal redemption and eternal life, God's love in sending Christ, said frame, is directed 
to the whole world. The world is the object of his desire. The object of his salvation, the reason that he sent the Son was for the world. And that's not just so here in John 3.16. What did, uh, and, and uh, us that lean Calvinistic get a little uncomfortable, but this is the language of the Scripture. John the Baptist pointed to Christ and says, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. Uh, that uh, very next verse here in John chapter 3, verse 17 says, For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. These are truths of Scripture that are, that, 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 that are, that are prevalent all throughout. The work of Christ is redemption, recreation, reconstitution of the entire world. And by the way, that's going to be the effect of it in the end. The creature itself shall, and this is not teaching universalism, this is talking about a a redemption of the entirety of creation is found in Christ. The creature itself shall shall rejoice in the liberty of the sons of God, that it rests, that it groans now in hope, but will realize it then. So, like I said, this is not universal salvation. This is not saying that there's, there, there are those that are not lost. But it's saying that God's intention of sending Christ was for the benefit of the entire world. That's the language of Scripture. And, it's, and, and it, it, cannot, it cannot be denied without construing and saying, well, God didn't really love, God's love was, is particular. Did he love his bride in an even greater way than he loved everything? Yeah, of course. But that's not to say that his love for the world is not real. Those who do not believe, those who do not believe definitely are condemned, and they're condemned already in chapter 18, and their condemnation is made even greater by the fact that the love of God was manifest to them. This is the condemnation. That light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than. That's the language there in John 3. The condemnation is made greater in the face of real love that was manifest. God sent to God. The conclusion of frame here was that God sent his son motivated by his love for the whole world. Jesus comes as a Savior for the world. That's John, 1 John chapter 4 says this, And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And although not every individual in the world will be saved, He's still the Savior of the world. And God will there will be a sense of redemption for the whole of creation because God loved the world and gave His Son. Does the coming of Christ benefit the lost? Of course it does. <laughs> and this, this, is what, this is what makes us uncomfortable uh, that when we're sitting there trying to figure out how uh, theology uh, in the sense and, and I have to I have to be honest even though I'll admit to you 
that I'm far more Calvinistic than I ever have been in my life. Uh, we cannot let that dictate to us the plain reading of Scripture. Does the coming of Christ as the love of God manifest for the world benefit this benefit the lost? And the answer is, it does. The general culture of benefits of Christianity are a benefit of all. Uh, we we have, have a culture that is under the influence of Christianity even still. And in the way we see kindness and charity, um, uh, that uh, our desire to alleviate poverty and things of that nature all flow from the Christian ideal and the Christian ethic that has benefited the world. Um, God's providence that it flows from His love benefits the lost. I need to watch the time, don't I? Oh, I'm, I, I'm running out of time. Uh, God, God giving opportunity to the sinner is a benefit to the sinner. It's not a curse to the sinner that uh, that God has manifest His love, manifest His light, manifest His Son, given opportunity. We read that in Romans 2. The goodness of God genuinely does lead to repentance. Right? That's, that's a, that, that, that means that God's beneficial act towards them is beneficial. Uh, John Frame says this, Some Calvinists conclude that these benefits, therefore, have nothing to do with God's love, only with His wrath. And that strains the idea of Scripture. It, before they come to faith, before I, you know, before I came to faith in Christ and before you came to faith in Christ, you were objects of God's wrath. Amen? And that, that's real. Uh, we were children of wrath even as others. We were without hope and without God, without Christ, Ephesians 2.12, before we came to Christ. And now we're objects of His very real love. That wrath that we were under was real. The love that we are under right now is real. And the love that God offers the, offers the wicked is real. Frame goes on, some Calvinists hesitate to say, to say to unbelievers, God loves you, for they think He loves only God's elect. But that's not the language of Scripture. It's impossible to know whether any particular person is elect or not. And, but the fact is, the fact that, um, for instance, God loved Israel as a whole. But not everybody in Israel was saved. But they were still, in a sense, objects of His love, even those that were outside of His grace. Uh, Paul, Paul witnessed to unbelievers. John, uh, turn to Acts 14, and we've got to close uh, here soon. But Acts 14, verse 17, we see this language of God to the lost, to unbelievers. Acts fourteen seventeen. Nevertheless, he left not himself without a witness in that he did good and gave rain from the heavens and fruitful seasons, filling their hearts with food and gladness. These are acts of love, the goodness of God. 
is a is a motivate uh, is motivated by his love as we've talked about before. Acts 17 gets into the same thing. What we looked at Romans 2, the goodness of God leads men to repentance. Uh, at some point, uh, or I'll just read this. And he said, "We certainly are well within the limits of Scripture when we point out to the non-Christian that God has loved them in many ways and gave them life, gave them health, gave them prosperity, gave them rains, gave them these are these are aspects of His love, desire even desiring your salvation." This is, this is uh, the truth of the Scripture. What did he say? I do not have pleasure in the death of the wicked. God's will is for men, all men, to be saved. That's His revealed will. And therefore, we're not sitting there trying to calculate who God's elect are. Who do we take the gospel to? Everyone. Everyone. Do we do that genuinely? Does God even give the command for us to go genuinely? No, we go to every creature. We can't take the gospel to the wrong address. We can't. God's love has a great extent. It extends far. And just uh, and, and when we talk like that, we can even sound Arminian in this way. And I'm, I'm not an Arminian in any sense of the... But, but, it, but it appears that God sent Jesus... I don't like the language that says that God only... Or the Arminian language that says God only hypothetically or, or uh, sent Christ, that Christ... Or Christ's death on the cross only made it hypothetical salvation. No, it made a real salvation for us. Uh, and that's the danger of the Arminian language. But for the danger of us speaking of God's love as if it was hypothetical as well is equally dangerous. It's an equal denial of the Scripture. God's sovereignty does not negate human responsibility at any point in time. And we're going to talk about these ideas of atonement, limited atonement and things like that, uh, and how this relates, but categorically Christ died for his elect but Christ died the extent and power of his atonement reaches to all can reach to all there is no one that's going to stand up and say God never loved me God never did anything for me ultimately when we say Christ died for all, it is possible that that includes even those that reject Him. I'm not saying that correctly, but I, want, I just want to say, I'm trying to say it with the most exact language. They're rejecting the love of God. What are they doing? Hebrews chapter 6. They are trampling the Son of God underfoot. They are putting His death to open shame by their open rejection of it, having known it, having tasted of it, having heard the gospel to live contrary to it. 
when someone rejects Christ, they are rejecting what honestly was potentially done for them. And that is a truth of the scriptures uh, that that is evident from from uh, what the word of God says. How what is the extent of God's love? It's it extends to everyone. What's the extent of Christ's work? It extends to everyone in the sense that it is being preached and declared available for all by his gospel. And those that are lost will be those that say, I don't want that. And, uh, and that's a sad state. I, I feel like I've stumbled around here, uh, but uh, I hope it made sense. And we're going to get deeper into God's love. We're going to talk about God's saving love, His, His grace, his, uh, his common grace, His covenant love, uh, specifically for His people, where it says Christ died for His church. Uh, what that means, the specific application of that. But any questions, complaints, or grievances? No grievances? All right. Questions? All right. All right. Amen. I'm thankful for that. No. Dear, fine. Stony ground. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, now if you don't preach Jesus Christ, it might fall on the wayside of your head. You know what I'm saying? Amen. <laughs> but the seed that fell on the stony ground was good seed too. <laughs> it just fell. It just fell on a heart that was unprepared for it. If you go out and you plant a seed of an apple, you're going to get apple. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the fault, but 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 the fault. My point was, is the fault wasn't in the seed uh, that was being sown, the gospel that was being preached. The fault was in the heart that did not, that was was not prepared and did not want to receive, or or was unable to receive it. Uh, and ultimately, that's a work of grace. If you're saved, that's a work of grace. Period. Uh, that God, God's spirit is. Preparing hearts and drawing hearts and doing those things. Um, there's no perfect analogy, so I, I don't want to take that any further than that. <laughs> so, uh, all right, we got about 10 minutes before the next hour. I went a little long.